Welcome to the Alan Turing Podcast, with James Turing and some of the UK's most exciting and forward-thinking business leaders. Today, Alan is famous as the father of computer science and code-breaker of the Nazi Enigma machine, and has been celebrated by the BBC as the greatest person of the 20th century. But it wasn't always that way. At the time of his passing in 1954, Alan's life had been defined as much by the tragic way in which he was treated by the country he had done so much to help, as it had by any of his work in mathematics or computing. Alan's family are keen to do their part in building the kinder and smarter world that Alan envisioned all those years ago, which is why we've launched this podcast series in which James Turing, the great nephew of Alan, will be speaking to some of the women and men shaping Britain today, covering a range of subjects from sustainability and mental health to inclusivity and innovation. First of all, just a few words about the organisations behind this series. The Turing Trust is a charity run by the Turing family. They refurbish used IT kit, principally from businesses, install a range of fantastic educational software and provide it to those who need it most, principally in rural African communities. Their vision is that one day every child will be able to enjoy the transformative power of technology. If your business doesn't yet have a solution for reusing its old IT kit, please do get in touch. The other organisation behind this series is Boss Digital, which is an agency I launched in 2010 that specialises in helping B2B and professional service firms generate more business online. We're incredibly proud to be helping the Turing Trust accelerate their impact. So to reiterate, if your company does not have a strategy for its old IT kit and are sending it into landfill, please visit the Turing Trust website and they'll help you turn that waste into a tool that will transform the lives of thousands of students. Over to James. Hi Kim, thank you very much for joining us today. Just to kick things off, would you be able to do a quick introduction to yourself and uh, a few of your companies? <laughs> yes, my name's Kim Antonio and I'm, I'm the founder and inventor of a unique voice recognition engine that has been created for children, but also the, um, the founder of a, of a food tech business called Cafoodle that helps businesses manage all of their allergen and nutritional information and be able to share that with their audience. Incredible. So quite a diverse set of two businesses, but I guess both fundamentally built on technology. Is that right? Definitely both built on technology. Technology was obviously the key to it. I think that um, more and more now, when you when there is a problem and you have a solution, more often than not nowadays, it needs to have some form of tech to back it up. And I think that's where I seem to have a, a knack of being able to find a real life problem and then come up with some tech that can support a solution. Exactly. No, I think that's often the, the trickiest bit. We can all think that tech must be a solution, but actually putting the two together is not as easy as it sounds. Uh, you can't just build an app for everything. <laughs> Wonderful. So just to begin, um, for the first of your three stories, could I ask you for any kind of experience from your early years that you think might have led you to pursuing this path in life, please? Yes, for sure. I grew up with a family. We were property developers. And um, so we were heavily involved in the construction industry. And um, it was quite a pivotal thing for me at a point when I needed to get a new typewriter. And this was in the 80s. And I'd heard about these fabulous new kind of word processor type typewriters, typewriters that could do things for you, automate things. So I went out on a mission to buy a word, you know, just basically a, a word processing typewriter and came back with my very first computer because why would you spend 200 pounds on a typewriter when you can spend a thousand pounds on a computer that's got a whole megabyte of memory um, and can do all these massive incredible things so I 
remember going into my local Dixon's and literally being so impatient that I couldn't even wait for them to come and fit it in and install it all in my home the following, this was a Saturday, the following Monday. I said, no, let me take it home. So I took it home with its 32 floppy disks and was determined that I would be able to set it up. And I think I got it home at about four o'clock on the Saturday afternoon and by something like six o'clock on the Sunday evening, I had a C prompt. I was delighted. But it gave me the absolute tech bug and learning on that very, very first machine absolutely changed everything for me because I then realised that technology was, you know, the key to so many efficiencies. And so for, for me, I, I, I then realised that, you know, how could I use tech in any way to kind of make what we're doing you know, just more, more efficient and for me more enjoyable because I've always enjoyed the whole activity of working with tech. Absolutely. No, I think uh, for lots of people, uh, tech can sometimes be a joy, but then for the other half of us, which I'm afraid I probably fall on the side of, it can also be equally frustrating. <laughs> but it depends, I guess, how well the apps, etc., that you're using have been developed, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny because I've got a variety of grandchildren and it's, it's hysterical when if ever of them have a tech problem, it's like, well, let's go and ask Nan. <laughs> and does Nan always respond saying, have you tried turning it off and on? No, I now say go to Ollie. He's 11. He knows more than me. <laughs> Brilliant. No, well, I think that is probably a case of what's more to come, isn't it? For sure. Okay, lovely. Um, and the second story I wanted to kind of ask you about was a, a challenging period in your working life and how that influenced the way that you manage and lead other people. Yes, I think probably from a, from a work perspective um, and a project perspective, the most challenging thing that we've done is to actually have built the voice recognition technology that powers our reading app for Netty. If I, if I can kind of just give you a little bit of background, if I may. Please do. I had this idea that it would be great to build a app, literally a reading app that would be able to help children. And that was motivated by the fact that I have a couple of really severely dyslexic children who are now grown up with children of their own who really struggled with reading and in particular reading aloud. In fact, they found that terrifying. And that coupled with an experience with my then grandson, who at that time was two, um, who was just getting a bit fractious on one occasion. And I gave him my iPhone and he he just literally swiped. When he, the video finished, he just swiped to the next video. He just instinctively, intrinsically knew what to do without being ever shown. Uh, and this was a point when he couldn't string a sentence together. So I had this idea that it would be a really good idea to to build an app. This was sort of seven years ago now. So to build an app that would allow children to read aloud and it would in some way indicate to them when they were on track and then highlight when they weren't. Um, so I got together with my co-inventor, a, a phenomenal guy by the name of Bill Bungay, and uh, he and I were talking about this problem and, you know, a potential solution over lunch one day. And we said, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to just build an app? Let's just do it. And uh, we started and we used some open source off the shelf speech technology. But the challenge came when it was evident that the actual speech technology that was required to power a reading application 
simply didn't exist. Not anywhere, not anywhere in the in the world was there something that we could use to power the app. So, you know, at that point, you have two choices, don't you? You've already put quite a bit of cash and time into a project that you think, well, you know, you either wait until somebody creates the technology or you do what we did. And that is have the blind faith in the fact that we had the ability to actually build the technology and that was a real challenge finding a partner um, and we were very very lucky to be introduced to the University of Edinburgh and some incredibly talented world-renowned speech recognition experts led by a phenomenal Dr Peter Bell Um, and as I say we were lucky enough to be introduced to him and he thought that our idea for building a speech recognition engine for reading and in particular for children's reading was a very good idea and there certainly wasn't anything around that that did that particular task at the time so we we set about literally building the tech and that that really was a massive challenge because you know what he basically did is took our basic concept and our basic premise that you would you know, have an off-the-shelf engine and then you would train it with the appropriate data. And in our context, it was children's reading. But then we, we realised, you know, how do you get hold of hours and hours of children's reading without literally going all around the country recording children's reading? So for us, we spent a year literally travelling all around the UK, from, you know, the John O'Groats to Land's End, recording children in classrooms, in playgrounds, in school libraries, in coffee shops, and in, in sound booths, and basically to, to bring together this enormous data set. And, you know, we, we worked tirelessly at it, and we were, we were relentless in our belief that we would be able to kind of get there in the end. And, and, and we did. It took a long time because it needed all of that exceptional data. But we got to a point, I remember the first moment when we could see the words changing colour on a tablet, on an, I- on an iPad, as we spoke in real time was just an incredible moment. But it was, for sure, probably one of the most you know, professionally challenging things I've ever done. No, I can imagine it. It sounds very much you sort of had to jump off a cliff edge, uh, having faith that the technology gods would catch you. <laughs> that, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yes, and we were lucky the technology gods caught us. <laughs> and, and what kind of gave you that uh, optimism, if I may? Blind faith and ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> absolute, absolute, you know, just, you know, I've always had a real can-do attitude. I, I've always believed especially with technology there's nothing you can't do if you haven't got time and budget and we had time and you know we we had a an ever-growing budget thanks to our you know our own kind of investment and then our early stage investors so yeah I I, I just genuinely never thought we couldn't do it um Cafoodle is another business that I created based on personal experience my husband's got a really severe sesame allergy and nearly died in a restaurant due to some bad information back in 2013. And I learned of this new regulation that came into play in 2017 that says all food businesses have got to show allergy information on demand. So with my background of sort of building tech systems for construction, where you had kind of a HQ and field workers, I transferred the idea of the HQ as I say and field workers to restaurants and diners 
And we, we built this incredible tech that helps food businesses, commercial caterers in schools, hospitals, care homes, uh, restaurants, cafes, pub groups, to be able to manage all of their uh, allergy information and their nutrition and so on, and then share that with the public. So literally the public can you know search by their particular nutritional and allergen requirements. Um, and that's an area that I feel really, really passionate around because allergens kill people. But, you know, people that have allergies, you know, there are, there are some incredible laws that are coming into play that are well overdue. One is Natasha's law, which is all about the fact that uh, businesses have got to label food properly with all of the correct allergen information. And then there's Owen's law, which means that allergens are going to need to be on menus by next year. And I think, again, that was a massive challenge because you're working with an industry that really are not used to tech. Chefs, kitchens are really not very tech-friendly places. So for us, the challenge was convincing the chefs and the business owners that the only safe way to be able to manage their food ingredients was by using technology because it was reliable and that was a huge challenge but I think that I'm super proud of the fact that we are now working in thousands and thousands of commercial kitchens helping people to manage that and just helping people to make healthier choices about what they eat. I think there are two really really important things aren't they in life and one's you know good nutrition and the other one is literacy and I think sort of being able to operate in both of those environments kind of makes me feel happy about getting up in the morning. Yeah, no, exactly. I think uh, there's a fantastic amount of potential there from what technology can offer, bringing that extra layer of transparency where it's needed most. I mean, certainly uh, it will, will change that dynamic for many people. I remember family meals where we'd be uh, earnestly worrying about peanut allergies and in the end, you know, going for, yeah, I'll have the ice cream, thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And and that that was a problem when we first started to work with kitchens because um, commercial kitchen chefs thought that the easiest way out of this is to actually just say that it everything contains every single allergy because then they won't get caught and of course there was a real kind of you know um, a whole load of, of chefs that were working in that way and that was awful because then you know you'd look at the menu and you see ice cream's got fish in it has it really <laughs> Yeah, not not something the vegans would have appreciated much either. <laughs> no, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Fantastic. Um, and I think that leads me perfectly onto my, my third question, which was sort of uh, a prediction for the future. Is there something that will kind of change the market or the broader business landscape and how we could best prepare for it? Well, I think everything has changed so dramatically because of COVID, obviously. I mean, in so very many ways. Um, and I think that one of the things that's come out of this is that technology has the ability to help in so many areas now in our particular area of technology which is of course speech and um, and voice recognition they predict that this particular area is going to exponentially grow because it's contactless and people have got used to contactless now they've got used to voice and I think that our big focus now is to put that to some good when you consider and we've, we've obviously chosen the area of literacy I mean, when you consider that 2 billion people on this planet 
cannot read and write. 770 million of those people can't read a single word. And 262 million children don't have access to a school. How do we get to those people? How do we approach and how, how do you just reach all of those people? And that's where you know, voice and tech, I think, is going to have a really massive role to play. I think that you know, what we've got to do is we've got to take everything that we learned over the last 18 months and all of those challenges and the way that the world has been made a smaller place. I think you know, things are more in reach now because of Zoom and, and everything else. Uh, people are more used to it. And I think that what we've got to do is we've got to find a problem. You can't fix everything. You really can't fix anything. And for me, it's just like you focus on one really, really important thing. And for me, that's absolutely how we use the technology that we've got for the greater good. And how do we get that to people? Um, and how can you make a difference? Because, you know, literacy, it's not even just about children. There are 16.9% of the English adult population is functionally illiterate. And that has a massive impact on their lives. There's a, a, another factor that I thought was outstanding. Nearly 50% of people in prison are functionally illiterate. And so, you know, I think that we've all got to pay more attention to, to this subject. I mean, it's the foundation of everything, isn't it? People can't make informed choices if they, if they can't read. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and certainly that's kind of the, the vision that the Turing Trust was founded on, kind of what we can do with technology that we, we currently aren't, but probably should um, for the betterment of the world. Without a doubt. And I think there are so many people that have not got access to real real life humans to be able to help them to to do things. I think that you're, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And what the Turing Trust are doing is phenomenal. And you know, tremendous legacy to your uncle. It, it's a great leveller as well. I know there's lots of talk, isn't there, at the moment, politically around levelling up. And how can you level up without technology? You can't. You know, or it's the fastest way of being able to level up, I think. Exactly. I would certainly agree. Uh, certainly makes doing your homework a bit quicker, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> without, without a doubt. Brilliant. Um, and so one of the other things I wanted to turn to, I think one of the, the key messages from my perspective that kind of goes underneath and builds the foundations for all of these these good works is kind of how companies can address the social impacts of what their businesses are doing. And I believe that's something you're doing with both of your companies and particularly sort of through uh, Oris, you're kind of looking at that business model and how other people can also fund for schools that might not be as privileged. Is that right? A hundred percent. That's that's been a big focus for and, and actually I'm really I was very touched and surprised about how many corporates, how many people that are doing well are prepared to actually help. So we run a, a corporate sponsorship program where we've got businesses that are literally paying to fund the application into schools. Um, and you know, we're we're part of that because we always maintain that for every three sponsors, we will actually sponsor a fourth school. Obviously, you know, we're a business, we can't do everything ourselves. If we had the, the funds and the means to it, we'd, we'd let everybody have it for free because it's almost the right thing to do. But I, I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the, the types of businesses that want to get involved. I think so many businesses now really do so much already for their local communities. And I think that the fact that they can maybe fund a local school or a local group of schools has been something that's been extremely 
you know well well received from our perspective and and you know we've there's some great benefactors out there i mean apart from that we've worked with quite a few phenomenal celebrities that have been prepared just to promote the idea for example we run a 12 days of christmas campaign uh, over over the 12 days of christmas of course where we asked a dozen celebrities to read a book from our platform and then just share it with their their own networks through their own social media and in turn they were able to we asked them to nominate a, an entire school that we could give the platform to in their name and you would be absolutely surprised at the amount of phenomenal people that were just so willing to do so we're we're honored to have a brand ambassador in Claire Balding who is just the most incredible support for us um, and she, you know with with her and through our network we've just been able to rally up some other support but we had people like Annika Rice, Robert Rinder, Dion Dublin, Martin Roberts, Kay Adams, Sarah Willingham and, and, and amongst others just all absolutely prepared to to do whatever was necessary to just to help spread the word. Absolutely no I think it's very much the kind of mantra of doing well by doing good. Um, and that fortunately is something that seems to be coming more and more common these days. Thank goodness. I think the other thing that's really important and really powerful, especially when we've all been at home and we've not been sort of in person a lot over the last 18 months, is the power of your network. And I think that when you're doing something good, it's actually really easy to sort of share that. And it's quite surprising how uh, many people respond. So, you know, it's about spreading the word, isn't it? Exactly. That's the key. Uh, hopefully something this podcast will do a, its own little bit in doing. I sincerely hope so. You're doing a tremendous job and what, what you're doing with, with the trust is just overwhelmingly brilliant. No, well, thank you, Kim. You're, you're far too kind. Brilliant. I think that's everything I wanted to chat about today. Thank you so much for your time. No, well, thank you again for taking the time as well. 